Hello and welcome to another very special episode of Is This Just Fantasy? It, it's just me. It's just Geordie. Don't worry, Duncan will be joining us momentarily when we have our interview with the author, Hayley Piper. She was the writer of The Worm and His Kings, along with, it turns out, like, a lot of stories. Um, and part of her proliferation is what we discuss. We also go over her relationship to the genre of cosmic horror, some reading recommendations she has for the year, and her writing process. We were so delighted to have a sit-down chat with her, and we had a great time interviewing her, and we hope you enjoy listening as much as we did having a chit-chat with her. So, without further ado, let's kick off. Take us away, me? Hello and welcome to another episode of Is Vicious Fantasy. I'm your host, Geordie Bailey, and we're having a very exciting episode for you today because we have Hayley Piper here, the author of The Worm and His Kings. Hello. <laughs> Hi, Hayley. It's so nice to have you with us. It's nice been... to be here. Thank you. I cannot kind of overemphasize how sort of excited I've been to. Firstly, since, because I'll be honest with you, Hayley, I hadn't heard of your work until Geordie came to me with the worm and the worm worm and his kings and since reading it I've been a little bit I'm gonna use the word obsessed but just so excited by (laughs) uh, your work because something was very new to me so Mm -hmm. I am really jazzed about this well thank you yeah I try to write lots of different things so there's a lot of weird very different things uh, between each book on that sort of note, because we picked up your book, because obviously we are predominantly, we sell us as like a, a fantasy podcast. We're looking at that genre and we want to try and, you know, map it out as best we can and be like, okay, this is where it started. And, you know, and we look at the 1920s and moving through time. Are you happy that we picked your book as went, yeah, yeah, this is fantasy? Are you happy yeah, with that assessment? actually. Because um, I feel that um, even though the book is primarily horror and, and cosmic horror and there are some science elements used, um, the science is kind of there to to grow the fantasy a little bit. I feel mm-hmm. like um, the vibes are fantasy and, and that makes sense because Dark Souls was one of the influences for, for the Worminous Kings. Mm. Um, and I think also like characters treating a scientific uh, concept as religion is mm-hmm. kind of works with fantasy in ways as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it comes down to that classic trope of you have cavemen walking around a spaceship and, you know, they can't comprehend what they see. And so what is that? Is that a science fiction novel or is that a fantasy novel? Right. The distinction that you've ever particularly cared for, like when you sit down to write, do you go, right, I'm writing a fantasy cosmic hover I want to be in that box or do you just kind of write and let other people put labels? I I tend to just write it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, at a time years ago, I was considered like a subgenre hopper. So I did like a possession novella and then a uh, slasher novella and then cosmic horror novella. And it wasn't really a sense of like, I want to do this now. Typically um, there's, there's two exceptions, but um, typically I just write the story and uh, like okay what is this and sometimes I get that right and sometimes the readers correct me um my most recent book A Light Most Hateful I didn't think was cosmic horror but um the the readers have have informed me that it is (laughs) Um, so it's like I you know they 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 can see that stuff more easily than I can I'm too close to it Mm. that's the death of the author right there um (laughs) Now, we talked about cosmic horror a lot so far in the episode, and um, I chose uh, 
this particular novel for our podcast, Duncan and I picked, taken in turns to pick episodes, and he had just picked The Shadow of Innsmouth, and I chose yeah. this as our follow-up. Definitely two novels at very different spaces in that subgenre. How do you feel that subgenre has changed in the past century since its creation? Um, well, so Cosmic Horror has kind of like been coined with Lovecraft and like mm. there's definitely a Lovecraftian uh, facet to Cosmic Horror and, and Worm and His Kings definitely fits into that element of Cosmic Horror. But there's also like, if you go even further back, there's... Um, uh, Robert Chambers with King and Yellow, um, and I am blanking on his name, but wrote who wrote the Willows and the White People. I think M.R. James. I'm not sure, um, but those are considered also like elements of cosmic horror that predate Lovecraft. Mm. Um, but I do think things have developed a bit since Lovecraft because um, Lovecraft kind of had one approach, which was. I am horrified by this to the point that I can't think anymore mm-hmm. um, with the exception of uh, in the mountains of madness, uh, which is probably my favorite Lovecraft thing. Absolutely um, too. But, um, and you can probably see that in some of the worm and his Kings as well, the, the secret history of, mm-hmm. of the world and such. Um, but I do think that since then we've had a lot of different, perspectives approaching it some people trying to like just expand on like the cthulhu mythos Mm -hmm. um other people wanting to question interrogate it other people wanting to come to it from their own uh perspectives of you know background uh identity etc um and a lot of people just wanting to kind of be like what lovecraft felt about this i'm gonna just flip it on its head completely either Mm intentionally or just because that's the way they see the world versus how he saw it which was tended to be very afraid of everything Mm -hmm. and everyone is is there any way you think you fit into that space um can you be more specific well you just sort of explained a sort of bandwidth of Um, um, being inspired by versus really wanted to confront it i honestly that depends on the project. Um, mm-hmm. There was a short story I wrote, um, Crepuscular, that was partly to kind of tackle some of the Innsmouth type of stuff. Um, but The Worminous Kings, I really wasn't thinking about Lovecraft while I was writing it. I kind of, I kind of just settled into the stories world and the characters. And it's the the challenge with The Worminous Kings was I had this I had this lore. And mm. how do I communicate it um, and, and the, the story of what happens with it? So it really wasn't until afterward that I kind of looked at it. I was like, yeah, this is a Lovecraftian type of cosmic car mm. um, in, in the time since then. Cause I think it just hit, it just, it did just hit three years since it's released. Um, I think last week mm-hmm. um, I've seen how it can it has kind of confronted or been a, a twist on how Lovecraft was. But again, that's like you said, death of the author. That's very mm-hmm. much still like the readers have been applying that stuff. There was, um, there was a, I think Gordon White had written an article in nightmare magazine that was kind of exploring how the worm is Kings was subverting a lot of Lovecraft stuff. And I wasn't really completely thinking about that while I was doing it. I, I think the more thought that goes into those type of analytical things when you're creating art or fic- mm. or, or writing it and such, 
I think it dam it can damage the art. Like I think it's a good jumping off place, but while I'm in there, I want to be thinking about the characters, the story, the mm. the themes, and then afterward, you're like, yeah, those themes kind of say Lovecraft go to hell or whatever. But um, you know, it's I I think while you're in it, it's healthier to to try to focus on the world a bit, and that stuff can come later. So kind of diving into that writing process, when you came to write The Women's Kings, was there, what was the like seed, if you could, if that's even reasonable to ask, like, it was like, yeah, that was the starting point and I expanded out from there or? So the seed is weird because I'd seen the phrase, the king and his worms and misread it. And when I realized I'd misread it, it was like, oh, that's my own thing. And I was like, what does that mean? And I started kind of exploring in my head, it's like, what is, what is, what is the worm and his kings? What is mm. that? And then it kind of developed into this whole backstory of this, of the world and this parallel timeline that was like the original version of earth. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the beginning of it was just the lore it was all the backstory, mm -hmm. what the worm wants, what it was, what it did to these people, how we sprang up because of the worm changing time. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was all that was all how it started. Everything else came after that. And you were looking at the worm, because I'm not gonna I'm fascinated by this as a character, despite <laughs> basically not really being in the page. Did you write the worm? Did you think of it like this is a do you think of the worm as like a, a being or like a, an individual character? Or was it more of a just a element present force of nature? Because we've had this debate and I'm still not sure how I feel. <laughs> I'm not gonna help you with that. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do think what I what I do feel is that I, I feel whoever if you're reading it I want you to come to your own conclusion mm -hmm. um I but I will say that as because it's a, it is a trilogy at this point the mm -hmm. third book comes out in April next year or no not April anymore. we moved it it's I think it's June mm -hmm. um there you get more information and can draw perhaps different conclusions or solidify the conclusion you felt from the first book. Um, mm. so there is more information. There is more, there are more revelations. And I do think that depending on what parts you feel are important or which parts you think are characters being right versus just speculating and thinking they're right can mm. change how you, how you feel. Because like, that's one of those things because a lot of people don't have that debate. Um, they just go in and like, Donna is right is as far as they're concerned when they're reading mm. the book and like Donna Donna's been brainwashed by this cult and she has the right perspective I'm just like well why do you think that that's <laughs> that is frankly a fascinating call because I I don't trust someone who would say I, I'm with Donna on this one and and that's the thing I'm just I I realized that later I was like she is so charismatic mm. that is why Monique was drawn to her but also it ends up with the reader, John. I've had multiple readers say they have a crush on Donna. And I'm just <laughs> like, sure, whatever. That's fine. No, uh, that checks out. I've seen Archive of Her Own. That, that, that makes that sense. That scares yeah. me. I'm just scared by that. <laughs> but okay. But, My reading um, experience was more red flag, bigger red flag. Kind of oh, that's just, a massive red flag. Yes. But for fictional, for fictional characters, that's okay. <laughs> yes. Yes. But, but, um, but Corin, Corin's point of view often... I've seen at least from what I've seen often gets ignored because she's not as charismatic as Donna. She's not making these megalomaniacal speeches about it. She's just mm. stating how she 
how she sees it. Now that we're focusing less on the big horror concepts and more on the characters, I, I would like to ask, um, I personally think that, you know, the heart of The Woman is Kings is essentially, you know, a toxic queer romance, you know, a romance between two people who are very different in age, and one of them has a lot of power over the other. What made you choose this to sort of be the centerpiece of the story? This is going to sound like such a cop-out. Um, <laughs> I don't feel like I choose a lot of this stuff. I, I think okay. that... I think the choice is often like the idea comes and you choose whether to use it or not. Mm -hmm. um, so, and that choice for me, a lot of the time in my writing process is what feels right. And to be honest, and a lot of writers will admit this, sometimes we just get lucky and like the different, the confluence of different details that you've given a characters ends up with a scene that just works just right for them. And like, you couldn't have planned it that way. It just had to happen from the elements you were already writing. So um, Monique, Monique came, it was in, Monique was inspired by a short story I'd written. I'd, I'd written a character who had a couple similarities to Monique. And I was like, this is interesting. I want to explore this, but not the same character. I want to explore someone like this character. And Monique kind of came up. And I, I cannot for the life of me remember where Donna came from. She feels like she's always been there. I, I genuinely, there, there definitely had to be a day where it's like there was no Donna in my head and then there was, but I have no memory of it. I cannot remember where she came from. Mm. Um, but it kind of just started with these two and just, it started with Monique's devotion and um, had to kind of develop into what's, you know, what is Donna's deal? What is going on with Donna? Mm. Why is she like this? Mm. <laughs> um, but yeah, it just, as it went on, it just, that's what felt right. And that's what felt appropriate for the circumstance, the greater circumstances that Monique was, had found herself in. If you're capable of recalling this, do you, do you remember if the sort of like slightly toxic aspects of the relationship appeared first before you decided that Donna was essentially, for want of a better term, the villain of the story, or did it go the other way around? Um... Yeah, I'm honestly not sure. I sure. wish I could. The, the part of the problem is that each of the worm books I've written completely over twice. Um, mm. I don't know why it's happened this way. It has not happened this way with any other books I've written, where mm -hmm. it's just been this very clumsy, wrong story the first time, and then having to scrap that and start completely from scratch. Usually when I'm rewriting a book, it's I'm still using the original draft as a template. Mm -hmm. For whatever reason, each of the worm books, it's just like, nope, I did it wrong. I was completely off, start over. And so that makes it difficult to remember, you know, what's the chicken and the egg of different mm -hmm. things. Whereas like other books, I could be like, oh yeah, this came first, that came first. And so, okay, I mean, you mentioned several times that obviously the worms is going to be a trilogy. Was that in your head from the start? You're like, this is the whole story I want to tell? Or has this kind of grown along the way? No, this the it, the original plan was for the Worm and his Kings to be a standalone. Mm. Um, and there was a lot being left out of the lore. Like I understood that there was only so much I could address from Monique's point of view that were, mm -hmm. that were set in for the book. Um, it wasn't till later, because people were like, is there going to be more of this? And I was like, guess there could be i don't really know um it's not an easy book to to 
to continue from. It's a very final ending. <laughs> it's but probably it one of the most genuine final shock. endings I've ever seen. <laughs> and I was like, Jordy, so are we going to pick up the sequel? And he's like, there's a sequel? <laughs> I, could, I didn't believe, I really thought he was joking. It's like, you can't do it. It's like creating a sequel to Pacific Rim. Like, how would you do that? Need to point at a finger is there is no sequel, but there we go. <laughs> um, yeah, so I wrote, I don't think I've said this on a podcast yet. I So I actually wrote a prequel first. Mm. And that was kind of going to set some things up. It didn't work. Um, it just didn't work. And um, so I scrapped that, started a new second book. And that's even the worm will turn. Mm. Um, but yeah, there was no plan for that initially. It was, it, and honestly, I don't think I, yeah, I wrote the second book last year. Um, so that was already like a year and a half after the Warmness Kings came out, which would mm. be probably like two and a half years after I wrote it. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that was just the necessary time it took to kind of figure out where to go from there um, and what what really felt right. And what was and, and now that it is there, I'm just like, OK, I'm happy with this. This is this is just right. So um it's in, it is interesting though because there there were a lot of people with that reactions like how is how is their second book? <laughs> so you've mentioned a few times how you you know you you look back you do rewrites you scrap things. I'm not a particularly creative person. I don't write. Geordie's the creative in this team. What does kind of a day in life of writing look like for you then? What how do you kind of do? You get up in the morning like right next six, eight hours I'm doing this bit or do you think okay today's the day for looking over what I've done? Um, I try not to look over things until I've finished a draft. Um, I just, for whatever reason, I feel that's healthier. That said, I do do it sometimes um, where I just kind of like, it, especially if something's bugging me because I, I have a good instinct with my characters and usually if I've had them do something that they wouldn't do, it nags at me for like a mm. day until I go back and like, no, they didn't do that, go rewind three pages we need to we need to fix this mm. um so usually it is just sit down and write um depending on it like on a weekday you know i try to do a couple hours before you know my day job um on the weekends i try to do four to six hours in the morning i'm, I'm a morning person so like getting up and just jumping right on the computer is like what's best for me um but yeah, it's usually just, you know, whatever I'm currently working on, work on it. If I'm trying to put something together, you know, organize notes, brainstorm, see what else can grow. Like how can a sentence grow into a paragraph, things like that. Um, you know, what am I missing? Um, I'm, I'm never starting with a blank page. Um, there's always there's always notes. There's always seeds mm. to different things. I, I, so I think that helps kind of just keep consistent. I saw on your website prior to our interview that you've just published your hundredth short story. Is that right? Yeah. Um, weird tales. Uh, it's so weird, like stacking of numbers that weird tales, 100 years of weird came out to celebrate the 100th anniversary of, mm. of weird tales. And that had happened to have my 100th published short story in it, mm. which, which is also a cosmic horror story. But that, that's important. It is it is weird tales. There's a lot of that going on in there. Um, so that, an excellent happenstance. But you said that, so you've 
a very prolific writer, you know, a hundred short stories. And I'm assuming that's not including full length novels like The Women as Kings, right? No. Um, so, so Scratch Off Universe is my hundredth short story and um, uh, A Light Most Heatful is my 10th book. Um, Women as Kings was my third book. Mm. So, so even with, so uh, it just surprised me that with so many stories coming out that you're starting with like one project at a time. Do you not juggle them and have a couple of ideas up in the air at a, at a go? Um, I'm not sure what you mean. Sure. Sorry. Um, okay. So uh, I thought when you were talking about your writing process about saying that you tend to tackle one project at a time, right? Yes. Yes. Um, so I, I sort of wondered do you have like these other ideas like sitting in the back of your head? Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, like I'm, I'm working on one project right now, but I have like probably three other books I'm supposed to be working on. Mm. Um, and then edits come in from publishers for other stuff. Um, and, but usually if it's short stories, I, I'm pretty much like, notes uh, you know ideas notes drafting editing finishing that short story without interruptions um or not interruptions like by day but not with other projects versus if i'm working on a book i will tend to stop in the middle just to write a short story because you mm. still get ideas and but you don't want them to pollute what you're working on like some of them you do mm. some of them you do want to um be part of that book but mm. other things are just like that's completely out there. I don't want that having anything to do with, you know, such and such book. I, but I need to get out of the system because I won't stop thinking about it. So then I'll just like, I'll write a short story. I'll take a week or so off from the book, write a short story, write that short story and then get back to the book. So is know, there a, distraction. a different process when you sit down, you write, oh, I'm writing a short story. Does that kind of feel different to you? Do you go, right, this idea is a short story idea. How does that? Yeah. Kind of... Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, usually because short, I think that short story writing and book writing are different, different things. Short stories, you really have to pack a lot more into things. So like sentences, sentences take on a certain art. I think that most of the time is not how you'd write a book only because you are trying to tangle with a bunch of ideas all at once. Um, and a lot of times it has different voice or different focus. Um, whereas, whereas my books tend to have kind of, I, I kind of approach them with the same, um, same pacing ideas, mm -hmm. same like sentence to sentence, not necessarily scene to scene, but just, um, whereas short stories, like you can, like I've had a flash fiction where I told the entire, a person's entire life story, whereas I wouldn't do that with a book because mm -hmm. I wouldn't write a book in that manner necessarily. I don't know if that answered your question. No, I, no, I think that's pretty good. It's a pretty solid answer. Uh, shall we get back onto the book and less on the uh, or the craft of writing? I, I have a particular question about this book, and um, I want to talk about the choice to have Monique's character and her queer identity hidden throughout so much of a story. You know, it's not told to us on page one. It's not told to us on page ten. You have to wait a long time through the book before it's made very plain. Um, what led you to make that particular choice? Um, it's probably, how to put this, it's probably not how I would approach things today. Mm. Um, I would probably make it clear not too long. It, it, 
part of it is that I want, I, I do want to wait for a point where it feels natural, but at the same time, there were points in the book where I could have been clearer about it earlier. I chose not to, because at the time, just at the time, my, well, my short stories were already being very like blatantly in your face, clear. My mm. books had kind of been a little more, um, tentative, ten, uh, not tentative, uh, cautious about, um, like, uh, Possession of Glasgow was my first novella and I was so nervous. I ended up erasing all reference, pretty much every reference to the main character being uh, a lesbian until mm. there's like one throwaway line and you could interpret it all kinds of ways. And I was just, cause I was new and I didn't, mm. I, I wasn't there yet. Um, Benny Rose, the cannibal King was my second book. And I was a little more into, I made it, I made it a little clearer that the main character was gay. Um, and there, but a lot of the references to it are very much like the other characters reacting to how strange they feel that is. It, it took place in the 80s. Um, mm. So it wasn't, so this one was my kind of like, this is this is the one where I'm going to be blatant about it. I'm going to be out, you know, out there with it. And, at, and that was clear enough just on the fact that, you know, Monique is looking for her girlfriend, Donna. Yeah, right on the blob. Um, Right, right, exactly. And that's and that's mainly what people see, like, okay, that's what it's about. I'm getting into this. Um, I you know, with the thing the way things have been, and honestly, they're getting more complicated now between both of our countries. Um, I really wanted people to like Monique first before mm. they found out. Sure. And that seems to have worked out. Um, like if and, and not to say I write characters to be likable, I definitely don't a lot of the time. But if they were going to whatever opinion they had that the reader had of her, they were going to have it before we got to that chapter that made it obvious what was going on with her. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I want it to be whatever opinion you're gonna have, have it before that point. And the hope was that people would like her, but you know, you can't control that either. But I didn't want that to be the deciding factor. I didn't, and I didn't want it to be a deciding factor right from the beginning. Mm. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, that's it's, that's really nice to hear, and it, it is it's quite hard to even hear, you know, that it's something you're having to consider when you're writing these characters. You know, how people are going to interpret it and what bias they're going to bring to it. But I just want to say, you know, it was really nice to read, and I know, you know, you kept it here. I'm not going to lie for about the first two thirds of the novel. I actually, I didn't pick up on that at all. I think Geordie got it a lot earlier i had I, to I, it was spelled I, out it was it was actually a very funny thing when, on the podcast was that my first clue for it was when i found out that monique was wearing two scarves and a beanie <laughs> i was like hang on something's afoot here <laughs> two scarves and a beanie i know what's going on yeah some people do pick it up pretty early um but other people they don't pick it up until the book very clearly mm. reveals it so that would be you're, me. you're both you're both valid <laughs> <laughs> now um so you mentioned that the uh, addressing Monique's trans identity, that might be something you would change if you went back. Is there anything else about the story looking back, you would go, mm, I wish I could change just that one thing. I wouldn't change this. Um, I just what I, I guess what I meant by that is that that's not how I approach the stories anymore. I don't think I'd mm. change the Worm of the Kings uh, as it is. Mm. Um, so no, there's, yeah, I don't honestly, because the thing is this, um, the reception to this book was 
unprecedented for me. Um, my previous books had, they were, they were small indie releases. And so was this, they didn't, none of them had marketing campaigns. They were just, you know, little books that went out there and I didn't really think much ahead as far as what that was going to mean. Mm. Um, worm exploded. I could not have anticipated how many people were going to check out the book or all the opinions they were going to have about it. And honestly, some of the analysis has been beyond my own understanding of the book. So I wouldn't change anything because I'd be afraid to break something, <laughs> which has made writing the sequels even more difficult, unfortunately. Mm. But um, I can't help with that. Just got to just got to write the stories and, and hope for the best. Uh, I, that's very fair enough. And I think that kind of may sort of glides into the next bit of the story that I really want to talk to you about. And that is that ending. Mm-hmm. Now, we've already spoken about it. We spoiled it. The ending of this book, Monique, in many respects, in a very positive way, <laughs> um, commits more destruction than most villains get round to. <laughs> How did you kind of arrive at that? Was, that? was that one of the very early ideas? That's when you only kind of when you got to the end. When you go, actually, Monique needs this power because i'm not like it was weird as a reader going you know, on paper she is wiping out the world or preventing the world from being that i should be against that but i i feel very on monique's side i mean that i would hope that people feel on monique's side by that point in the book because it's like if i don't have you by if, if she doesn't have you by then she's she's never going to through mm. all the shit she goes through um let's see I originally wrote this as a short story uh, that did not work. Mm-hmm. And so I that is when I decided it needed to be a novella. The short story had a different ending somewhat. Um, and it's referenced in what Donna says to Monique near the end about like children of the worm that you, you know, you'll, you'll be the mother to them and they, they'll eat the, They'll eat the worlds that could have been and such. Um, that is more what it originally was. But um, as I was looking at the, like I said, you know, sometimes you get lucky with these elements. About halfway through the the first version of, of the novella, I was looking at the different elements and I was not only realizing that something else was kind of coming together here, but also that Monique wasn't, the type of character who's just going to go along with that. Um, mm-hmm. She's a fighter. She doesn't quit. Um, and the, the essentially the thematic emphasis on there is a time to give up. There is a time to let go and quit is in the acceptance that she can do more than that. Mm. Um, and so Again, it's one of those things where it's like you you get lucky, you notice that this stuff is going on. And I noticed it early enough that I could start writing into that direction. Mm. And um, yeah, so it wasn't the plan from the start, but it did become the plan pretty early, early into the pro- process. Um, I did. I don't know. Some, honestly, if I was giving Monique what I what I what I feel she deserves, it would be you know, a happier, peaceful human life. Um, but I don't think that writing stories is about just like, this is a good character. I give you a prize. This is a bad character. I give you a punishment. Mm-hmm. I think that's a very simplistic way to look at art. And um, and it is interesting because um, 
I feel about the ending the way you're saying, Duncan, but a lot of people have very different perspectives about the ending. Some people have, see it as an extremely bleak ending. Yeah, um, sure. And, and like, and and all those perspectives are are fine. Like, you know, it's it's not it's not insisting on its own uh, on how you should look at it. It's just it is there, and you can see it how you want to. Um, but it is the way it is the choice that I felt Monique would make at that point. No, if and it's Mon- if it's Monique. And I, and personally, I think the ending is it's the boldest and strongest part of the story for me. I think it's um the thing that really sets apart from so many of the other books that we've analysed in our podcast. Was it positive nihilism you put down? Was it talking? I called it positive nihilism. Maybe that maybe that's not what you would have in mind here, but that's what I called it. Yeah, I don't I don't know. Um, I mean, for me, to me, it's it's uh, it's it's a drastic version of just giving this world back to the to the people who were there mm. first um you know humans have not been good to monique and in this mm. instance she chooses to give it to the pangeans who showed affection to her at mm. the end as she's especially she's lying there in the worm's throne in the in the very thing that's terrified her so much throughout the book the empty place mm-hmm. and broken and hurt and heartbroken like like she could have never anticipated after Donna had saved her from Dr. Sam. Um, and that's just, that's the decision she makes. So we've discussed how that you're an extremely prolific writer, you know, 100 stor- short stories out, a number more novels and novellas. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how you began writing in the first place? Um, like professionally or period? Period. Okay. Uh, I was little... And I just kind of started writing stories down. Um, mm-hmm. I think my first was, uh, let's see, uh, I was trying to do my own Jurassic Park, mm-hmm. which I called Cretaceous Park. Amazing. No one know. No one know. <laughs> and I thought that if the story was 400 lines, then that would mean it was the same length as the 400 pages of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, that is not how writing works but and that's a shame <laughs> that is a shame <laughs> it would be much easier i suppose um yeah i don't i i think that story was maybe like 12 pages i don't know mm-hmm. um but yeah so that's uh, that's as early the earliest i can remember doing myself i i remember i would tell i would tell adults stories and ask them to write them um, but it turns out after you get to be like eight years old, no one wants to be your personal secretary anymore, <laughs> um, unless you're paying them, sure. um, which an eight-year-old cannot do. So I had to learn to to start typing. Mm-hmm. And were you writing a lot of stories even back then? Not a lot. It I mean, I it probably took me weeks to write <laughs> write that one thing back then. Um, I remember that, and I remember. I remember one about where, because I, I back then I used to watch a lot of fifties uh, B movies, um, like Earth Earth versus the Flying Saucers, Monster that Challenged the World, mm. like all those all those all those great ones. Um, so I had I remember I wrote one about a I never finished this, but it was one about flying saucers coming to the world and like they were mutating the chickens into like kaiju essentially. And that was that was their plan to take over the world. 
and that's your next novel, right? You know, because this is gold you're talking about right here. <laughs> you're not the first person who's who's asked me, oh, you should, are you going to write that, right? And it's like, I don't think so. <laughs> but um, I, I remember that one only because um, I started, that was when I, I think I was 10 mm-hmm. and that was, or nine or 10. That's when I started writing curse words into it because I wanted it to be an adult story. Mm. <laughs> and there was something with werewolves I don't remember clearly. Um, it was just little little things. Um, but I, the funny thing is, even though those are all like kind of monster things, at a certain point, I thought I was going to be a fantasy author. Mm-hmm. And I, I blame Neil Gaiman for that a little bit because I think I read American Gods and I was like, oh my God, and then Lord of the Rings. And I was just like, oh, this is so, this is so wild. Like I never, I never thought of stuff like this before. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I spent a lot of years kind of trying to work on that stuff, um, a, a particular fantasy novel, which became No Gods for Drowning, um, which uh, that didn't come out to last year. But it was like I mm. worked and that on that off and on and, and long periods of not writing just because of like psychological stuff or whatever. Um, mm. you know, depression is not great for creativity a lot for me, at least, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Um, but after I started to come out of that is when I started writing and I was like, I'm going to actually start sending things places. And so I started writing short stories again and I was like, you know, I know I, my plan was fantasy, but I really just, most of the movies I watch are horror. I'm always looking for horror books. I love monsters and stuff. Why am I not writing horror? Mm -hmm. And then, so I started, finally started writing horror again for the first time since I was a little kid. And start sending the stories out and things have you know snowballed from there i mean i do just want to jump back on one point you said how you wrote 400 lines and that was like 12 pages that was nothing i just want to say that uh, that smashes my personal best which i believe is seven paragraphs before i suddenly (laughs) went i can't do this it's not for me that's you gotta that's you gotta you can't if, if it's not if it's not writing then it doesn't exist if you write seven paragraphs it's seven more paragraphs from zero paragraphs no to be fair that is good that's advice i always give um i doing a phd once i had to advise like students i'll be like guys I, I can't give you feedback unless you write like i don't care right. how bad it is it just needs to exist exactly exactly no that's and that's the thing first drafts only job is to exist Speaking of, like, you know, all these stories in down, now we're talking about actually putting things to page. It Are you just uh, a writer then who's just one of your skills is that you're able to just get things down? Do you not experience a lot of paralysis sometimes? Not really. Um, I'll sometimes struggle if it's like a, if it's a, uh, an anthology where there's a specific theme, I'll sometimes stumble with that a bit and I need to kind of brainstorm a bit more i'll usually write down a couple intentionally ridiculous ideas just to kind mm. of give my brain permission to be like okay anything goes there's no bad there's nothing bad just just put some stuff out there just think of some things um though usually with that i'm trying to first think about what is what are other people likely to do and then steer away from that mm. um but yeah no i i can usually just sit down and just start start writing because the the thing is um just write it bad first if you're having a hard time that's it's really uh, that was today honestly mm-hmm. i was writing a scene and i was having a hard time figuring out how i wanted to start it so i was like just write it bad and it's like 
there's this noise and then the street is here and then character is having this reaction and it's all sloppily like sentence fragments in like a column down the page but it's Mm -hmm. like okay so now i can use that to guide me into writing actual sentences and paragraphs and things and even those don't have to be good like that's you know that's what revisions are for i can do Mm. that later that's really nice to hear and i think it's personally for me it gives more hope (laughs) for that approach you mentioned there about like thinking about what other people would write or what other people didn't stay away from that do you have a bit of uh, you know your hand to the pulse of what other horror writers are doing do you consume a lot or do you sometimes go no actually i need to focus on my stuff or um well it's that's really a very specific situation where there's like a, an anthology that has a theme um usually when i'm writing my books i'm not worried about what other people are doing um in this in those stories i just don't want to stray into what is most likely i suppose um let me think of how I want to put this. Um, I mean, I do have, I do feel like I have a you know finger to the pulse of of what's going on in the genre, specifically because I do read a lot. Um, whether it's to to you know, I get some books before they come out. Some of them are ones that I buy a lot of. I try to read stories. I haven't been reading as many short stories as I used to, so I do want to get back to that next year. I'm hoping. Um, but no, I'm not usually thinking like, because the thing is, if, what was it? There's something I was working on. I can't remember what it was. Um, but I, I, while I was working on it, I started reading a book and realized it was doing certain similar things. And I was just like, oh, cool. So there's other people interested in this. And that's a comp now for, for when I have to pitch this to my agent. Um, I'm not that's really worried. That's a good have. <laughs> I'm not really worried about it because, um, and I give this advice to writers, um, you know, people want to pretend, oh, everybody's the same. Everybody's thinks of things this way. And it's like, that's, that's not true. Every person is different. So you, even if it's a type of story or an idea or whatever that's been done before, um, you should still write it because you're the only you and you're the only one who has your perspective. Mm. Speaking of other books that are out there, are there any books that you have enjoyed reading this year and you want to recommend to anyone who might listen to this interview? Oh, that's something you got to ask before the <laughs> before the interview. Oh dear. Uh, so I can so I can like look over everything I've read this year. <laughs> uh, let me think. Um, All the sinners plead. Um, it, uh, that's here. Here's the problem. I'm probably going to give you a bunch of horror and and horror adjacent. That's a, that's all right. Yeah, it doesn't books. need to be fantasy themed. Okay, all this, all the sinners plead by um by S. A. Cosby is a really good. I, I mean, I know a bunch of people call it thriller, and it's in crime. I felt it was very, very much a horror book, more more so than his other books um, that I've you, read. Sorry, don't mind me. What do you feel is the real difference there? When people say, "Oh, it's a thriller," it's a horror. I'm like, well, get your heart rate up. What's... Um, the difference between a horror and a thriller is that a thriller has a cop as a protagonist often. <laughs> that's the only difference. In, and that's honestly a way to trick people who say they don't like horror, but they actually do into reading a horror story is just call it a thriller and make a cop the protagonist and they'll jump right in. I'm going to be quite honest and say that Geordie basically tricked me into reading horror. If you ask me, I'd be like, I don't do horror. I brought up, I think it's when the, maybe the generation me and Geordie were in. When I was growing up, it very much Saw was the big movie franchise. I went, 
that's not for me uh but you throw in some fantasy elements i'm like yeah okay tell me the lore tell me the background of this world (laughs) yeah yeah. there's there's horror for everyone in my opinion um and the thing is some people love it when horror and fantasy are mixed together and some people really hate it they want it to just be a straight horror story which i don't even know what that means because Mm. like vampires are fantasy werewolves are fantasy you can get fantasy you know more fantastical or fantasy oriented elements like you have a you have a palace in the Warminist kings you have these creepy hooded figures um it feels more like a fantasy book when you actually once you actually get into the underground mm. um but some things just have fantastical like nightmare on elm street is technically horror fantasy um he's coming into your dreams like that's not that's not simple ghosts and it's not a it's not a simple serial killer mm. um Let's see what else have I read this year. I, I read a lot, unfortunately, so it's hard. Um, Mister Magic by Kirsten White is another mm-hmm. one. Um, that that does have more fantastical elements involving the uh, creepy children's programming from the from the eighties and early nineties. Um, Maybe we um, could narrow the question down a bit, though, because <laughs> re- when we I read once again, it was the first time I read kind of cosmic horror outside H.P. Lovecraft. That's an oh, really? okay. and I kind of went. Well, I enjoyed the idea of cosmic horror. Geordie got me to play a Call of Cthulhu role playing game years ago, and I was like, okay, I'm on board. <laughs> but picked up H. Grass and went, don't like it that much. He has a <laughs> few uh, opinions here that are turning me off the yeah. reading experience. Mm. So, is there any other work? Obviously, you can promote your own yourself here, but is there anyone else maybe in that in the cosmic horror field that you'd be like, no, you should try these guys out? Um, yeah, um, these are more novellas as well, but I definitely recommend them. Um, I, I feel like the Ballad of Black Tom by Victor Laval is a good companion piece, both to Lovecraft stuff and to the Worm and his Kings. Um, they're both take on his more directly. His is specifically a retelling of a certain Lovecraft story, um, in, in a way, um, but it's a, it's an amazing book. I think I've read it like three times at this point. It's um, I, I highly recommend the Ballad of Black Tom by Victor, Victor Laval. Um, if you want to get really trippy and mathematical with Cosmic Card, The Wingspan of Severed Hands by Joe Koch is another mm-hmm. one. It's that's more approaching the King in Yellow type of type of Cosmic Horror, but it is um, it is it is like like nothing else I've read and um is is very strange um it it all comes together well if if you you kind of have to read it slowly though to really absorb everything um trying to think of others like there are a ton it's just um i'm not good at remembering book titles on the spot so i'm like perusing my shelves because i'm like i know i have others i just my brain is blanking um, I love those. Are, you see those you are... looking off to the left. I'm like, I'm imagining you've got this massive wall spread. I mean, I wish it was bigger. <laughs> <laughs> we all do. It's yeah. Um. Oh, Brian Hodge. Um. I don't know. I haven't read any of his novels, but his short stories are fantastic cosmic horror. Um, especially on these blackened shores of time. I don't know what book you can find in except I think Best Horror of the Year, Volume Nine. But it is. Yeah, if if someone who likes the Worm and His Kings would definitely enjoy that story, I feel it begins with a father 
seeing a sinkhole open at the cul-de-sac in their neighborhood and his son who's in his car gets swallowed up by the sinkhole Mm. um so yeah that's i mean that's a good that's that's some stuff to get you started but there's there's a bunch really i'm just my my brain is just i if i had it if i had a chance to like write some down i could write down a bunch of them okay with that duncan i i've come to the end of my prepared questions how about you I'm end of my prepared questions, but hey, I do have one that just popped in my head. You've mentioned, you know, some of the other recommendations for a lot of short stories. Yourself has written loads of a hundred short stories, HP Lovecraft short stories, a few novels as well. Is there do you reckon there is a bias towards short stories when it comes to cosmic horror? And do you think there is a, a reason for that, or it's just the way that it's fallen out? Or maybe um, if there's not a bias and I'm just is my bias on what gets recommended. I think I think books are easier to recommend because um, you can kind of just be like, this is the synopsis. This is what this book's about. You're going to stay focused on what this is about through the book. Um, Whereas short stories can kind of just dip into a concept and then dip out. Um, So like, if you really want to explore it, then I think a book is the way to go. But if you really just kind of want to graze an idea, then I think a short story is, is, is the way to go but i could and like anybody can mix those up too i just i think it's a matter of what kind of approach you want to have no i can really see that well thank you so much Haley. it's been a really interesting interview we've learned so much from it already um we'd like to thank you so much for coming on the show oh thank you so much for having me this is great absolute pleasure i honestly it's been so nice just to hear your perspective speaking on your writing process where uh someone who again doesn't like to write it's so nice to hear like and how it can differ from different people and what works for certain people i think it can be really nice for others listening to then go okay it's okay to write badly to begin with (laughs) yeah i mean and that's the thing i think um i think anyone who's looking for writing guidance um should listen to multiple different authors because no one of us has the same process and also one person's process isn't going to work so you for, for anyone else in particular. So you kind of just, um, you need to collect a bunch of different perspectives on it. So you can kind of like, you know, cobble together the one that works for you. And also I think be willing to notice if that process that was working stops working. Cause sometimes mm-hmm. that happens too. um, different stories. I've had different means of approaching them. I, I think the the biggest thing is to kind of just go easy on yourself and just like, you know, have fun with it, honestly, because because um, the more pressure you put on yourself, the harder it gets. Awesome. Well, fantastic insight. Thank you so much, Haley. And just to uh, go over this again, your next third and final book in the Worms trilogy is due out. So it's next June it's, or is due? It's supposed to. <laughs> it's supposed to come out in June 2024. It's this um it's Song of the Tyrant Worm. Very much looking forward to it. Well, thank you so much, Haley. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. A pleasure. Have a wonderful day. So long. You too. Thank yes. you so much. Bye everyone. <laughs> well, as you can tell, there was an absolute delight. Duncan and I were so pleased by the interview. Uh we had a really great time in our discussion, and we're so happy that Haley enjoyed herself as well. Well, I've been your host, Geordie Bailey, and next time we really will get on to Sisters of Steel and Shadows. Is that what it's called? It might be Sword and Shadows. No. Sisters of Sword and Shadows, not Steel and Shadows. That that was my mistake. Alright, so long.